people. You may be seated. Thank you all for being here. Um, so today, we are going to finish our discussion on the five solas of the Reformation. And um, I'm excited about it, being a theological nerd. Uh, so thank you for being with me on this. The response has been really good. Uh, we are doing something unique, though, because uh, we have done the five solas out of order. Uh, we're going to jump back to the beginning and talk about grace alone today. This is normally the first one. Now, for those of you who are new with us, when we talk about the five solas, um, sola just means alone in Latin. Uh, and so typically this is these statements of faith that came out of the Reformation that we've believed really before that, but that were clarified in the Reformation. And that is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, according to Scripture alone. I just said them out of order just now. <laughs> um, so today we're going to talk about salvation by grace alone. We're going to primarily be in Ephesians 2. Um, and so I'm going to just cite the key passage here first. And then we're going to jump into some discussion. But before I do that, I am going to pray that God would be with us. Father, um, we have already worshipped you today. Uh, we believe that your Holy Spirit is in our midst with us. Uh, that as the saints have gathered together... Um, the Holy Spirit is here. God, you are omnipresent. We're acknowledging your presence, and we're thanking you for it. So we ask also, Lord, that you would illuminate the Word of God to us today, that it would be clear by your Holy Spirit, that we would understand the truth of your Word. Beyond that, God, I ask that you would give clear understanding, yes, but also convict us that we would be able to obey what you have shown us. And then beyond all that, anoint the words that I speak, that they would be according to your will. And then receive glory as we look at who you are. Uh, one more thing, Lord, for those of us who maybe you have not fully understood salvation by grace through faith, God, would you convict, uh, convict us of sin that we would come to salvation in Christ. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. In order to jump into this discussion, I have a brief little illustration here so that we understand what merit is as opposed to grace. Uh, typically, when we say salvation is by grace alone, we're talking about grace and not merit. Note that when we talked about faith alone, we talked about faith and not works. It's kind of easy to get a little bit confused between what is works and what is merit. Works is something I am doing to earn salvation, right? Merit is the result of those works or of some other inherent value. The definition of merit is the quality of being good or worthy. In contrast, the meaning of grace is unmerited favor. It is right there in the definition. Grace is simply favor we receive from God that has nothing to do with any merit we bring to the table. Making sense? Um, by the way, you're welcome to take pictures of this. I'll also put it on the church website later so you guys have the notes. Um, merit is based on one's value, be it inherent result or resulting from the works of man. Grace is rooted in the character of God and the work of Christ. Merit gives glory to man. Grace gives glory to God. And in merit, I can never have enough. No matter how hard I work, I will never have enough merit. Grace means God is always enough. All right? So let's continue in our discussion a little bit. And I... I'm going to preface this next section and say uh, I'm going to address some false teaching in both 
Protestant and Catholic churches. And so, in case you think that I'm picking first on Catholics, understand I'm about to come twice as hard on some Protestants. So just get ready. Uh, we're just going to address some error that unfortunately has creeped in to the church globally. And the reason why this teaching on salvation by grace alone had to be reiterated in the Reformation is because the church had drifted into thinking that we could earn something of our own. What, I, what you will probably find is that in some Catholic teaching, the focus is on the need for works in order to earn merit. In some Protestant teaching, the focus is on your inherent value too much, as if there was something just real special about you that God wanted, that out of your own just natural goodness, God chose you. As we will see, that is still a focus on merit, and it is still false. You guys ready? Cool. All right, here we go. So, um, in the Roman Catholic Council of Trent, which was seen as the Counter-Reformation, there were several canons stated that essentially denied salvation by grace alone and through faith alone. We could read through this. It's cumbersome because it's old, but essentially what Canon 30 gets at is that you are not saved by grace alone. Uh, canons 9, 12, 14, 23, 24, 30, and 33 all essentially say the same thing uh, in different ways, but they're reiterating that merit is required in the Catholic view of salvation. Now, a side note, you will talk to many Catholics that don't believe this and will be like, what? I've never heard of the Council of Trent. So please be gracious. Don't just accuse a Catholic of being a heretic because most Catholics have no idea what the Council of Trent is in my experience, right? Reading on though, because men as Protestants, we don't get off the hook. I'm going to cite some popular Christian teachers right now who would call themselves Protestant, who have overemphasized human merit. Um, I'm, I'm just going to do this because I think it's necessary. Todd White, popular Christian teacher these days, uh, known for going around laying hands and healing people. This is his quote. He says, The cross to me isn't the revelation of my sin. The cross is actually the revealing of my value. In his view... What's happening on the cross is God thinking that I was so great that he was willing to allow his son to die to get me back. Well, in a certain context, I can say, hey, God wanted me. Praise the Lord. He chose to value me, but there was nothing inherently good in me. And if I'm focusing on my value when I look at the atoning death of Christ, essentially I am... I'm idolatizing, idolatrizing myself. Understand? It's a bad doctrine. Similarly, Benny Hinn makes this comment. He says, may I say it like this? You are a little God on earth running around. Uh, Benny Hinn, among, uh, along with Kenneth Copeland and many other of the faith word movement, essentially believe that we are little gods and that God just has to do a little bit to get us to a place where we will earn the next steps up. For them, it's less about sin and the punishment for sin, and it's a lot more about being entered into wealth. Still, can you see, in Benny Hinn's view, I bring merit to the table as a small g God. That is damnable error. Reading on, Joyce Meyer, who I understand has made some correction, she says things like this, a positive attitude gives you the power over your circumstances instead of your circumstances having power over you. Understand there that the mindset is like, well, if you just have the right mindset, you have power. Somehow as if I can do something to get where I need to be in light of God's favor. 
And the uh, consummate, well, well, we'll get to that in a second. Similarly, Bill Johnson, he's made comments like, a culture of honor is celebrating who a person is without stumbling who, over who they are not. Sometimes I can be like, okay, well, I can kind of get with that. I understand. But if my focus is on that person and their inherent goodness rather than what God has done in and through them, then I'm, I'm slowly elevating a person rather than Christ. And it can lead to error. And then, as we've mentioned, the consummate heretic of our generation, Joel Osteen, made this comment. He says, in dealing with people for several years, thousands of people, one thing I can tell you is that 99.9% of people are not bad people. They may make bad choices, but deep down they are good at heart. This in direct contrast to what Scripture says about the heart being deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. We can read on that again and again, Scripture is so clear that man in our fallen state is wicked and evil, and we need a Savior. So can I, hopefully we're all following this, you know, you with me, that there is one tendency to think that my works earn me merit. There's another to think that I'm just naturally awesome and I have merit as a result. Both of those are false views. We need to recognize that apart from Christ, I can do nothing. Apart from Christ, I have no real value for eternity. Everybody with me? All right, we're going to enter into Ephesians 2 then, now that I've set the bar and hopefully bummed us out just the right amount for the good news that's about to come. All right, Ephesians 2. Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, and he says this. Now, keep in mind, he is writing to current believers about their past life. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I just worth noting... I can see nothing here about man's ability to do any work or to be anything of value. This is not 99.9% of people are good. This is not, I'm a small G God. Notice the language is that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. I'll I'll rhetorically ask the question, how much work can a dead man do? The answer is zero. How much merit can a dead person earn? The answer is zero. So he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. This language of like, I am drifting along with the course of the world, which is being controlled by our enemy Satan. He says, that was the way you once were. You were a dead body, spiritually, floating in the, in the course of the streams of this world that are led about by our enemy. There is nothing in here about you being anything but spiritually dead. And he goes on saying, the only thing you could do is function according to the passions of your flesh and the desires of the body and mind. And as a result, you are by nature children of wrath. This is heavy. Like, this should bum us out a little bit when we realize, yikes, I was that bad. Even, by the way, doesn't hold back. He says, children of wrath. The idea is that in our sin, we were incurring the wrath of God. And it was like, God's just storing that up. Right? Because a day will come where he pours out that wrath. And if we are not moved from death into life in Christ, we will incur that wrath upon ourselves. It's not a good thing. Little side note, just to point out, I will occasionally hear pastors, even what would be called evangelical pastors, say things like, well, God's never been mad at you. I'm just 
categorically have to say that is a false statement. We were under the wrath of God before Christ. He was angry. He hates sin. He will punish sinners. We need to acknowledge that reality. Side note, this is what makes Christ so wonderful. And on the cross, he took upon himself the wrath of God so that we would not have to. All right, now that we've sufficiently gone to the heavy side, let's read a little bit more. Uh, verse 4, it says, But God, being rich in mercy... A little side note, I need to, we're going to do this in more detail in a minute. But um, notice that whole last section was about who we were, and it was not good news about who we were. Remember, we often, when we're looking at a passage, we'll say, what does it say about God? What does it say about us? And how should we respond? So what we just did is we looked at what this passage said about us, and it wasn't good. This next passage seems to get into what we know about God. He says, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Everything about this passage relates to who God is. No, it's talking about him being rich in mercy, having great love for us. And that even while we were dead in our sin, he didn't wait for us to make the first move because he knew we were dead and we couldn't. He made us alive together in Christ. And you notice he's reiterating, you're saved by grace. He's going to say that from different angles about four or five times here. He's saying it was completely the work of God for his glory, not yours. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. All of this so that he could show the immeasurable riches of his grace. The purpose of salvation by grace alone is so that God can show off his grace and receive glory for it. Everybody with me on this? Because this is really good news. I didn't start from some place of being awesome. I didn't start from some place of being able to work to earn something. I started dead. And God said, that one, I want him. I'm coming for him. He's mine. Um, many of you uh, know some of the people in our church uh, or connected with our church, Louie and Aaron, just recently adopted. Those two boys they adopted did not do anything to earn their love. Louie and Aaron said, those two, I want them. They're ours. And they did everything it took to adopt those children into their family. This is what God has done with us. I don't earn the adoption. I don't do anything to merit it. God doesn't look and say, well, that one looks like he's going to be a good football player someday. Let's get that one. God says, he's mine. Nothing that he has done, nothing that he is. It's just me. It's out of my grace, God says, that I chose you. So I've got a little illustration for this because there's all this language. You guys might remember when we talked about salvation in Christ and how there's this language of moving from death under the headship of Adam to being moved into Christ and his headship, right? And so there's this language. You guys like my little illustration here? I'm, I'm really proud of these. Um, but not meritoriously. Um, so notice it talks about we're dead in our trespasses and sins. In so much that we are in trespasses and sins, 
We were living by the passions of the flesh. We were dead in our spirit, and we were children of wrath. But then but God, by his grace, through the atoning work of Christ, adopts us, makes us alive in Christ. This is key language of in. Either I'm in trespasses and sins, or I'm in Christ, alive in him. He even uses, we're going to, I'm about to get in my head of myself, but he uses this language of being seated in heavenly places. Like, who is actually seated in the heavenlies? Jesus, yeah. About 90% of the time, the answer will be Jesus. I, I don't always do that intentionally, but um, yeah, what's happening here? So in so much as I am in him, from an eternal perspective, I am present with him. Like all of the greatness of Christ, I, I get to receive the benefits from because I am in Christ. This is good news. So we're going to read on a little bit because all of this has been about there's no merit we earn. Something interesting happens here in verse 8. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, it is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. He's reiterating this again, right? Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. I've lost count. I think it's like six or eight times he's addressing salvation by grace, or that there's no works involved. And then in verse 10, he says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. How interesting that in this entire passage where the focus is on like there, you don't earn anything. You don't do anything. You don't earn it at all. It is completely by grace, completely by faith. God's the one doing all the work. And then all of a sudden we're talking about works. How interesting, right? Side note, has it confused anybody? No? You guys are already astute theologians. You're doing just fine. Let me just point out what happens here. He begins by saying, we are his workmanship. Um, Let me just ask, is workmanship a noun or a verb? No, sorry. It's a noun. Workmanship is a noun. Like, it is the resulting of God's work. I am his workmanship. I am not the worker. I am the workmanship, right? God is the one doing the work to complete me into what he wants me to be. We are his workmanship, created, again, a work of God, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand for us to walk in them. Yes? Um, you know, just for verse 10, um, you know, is it possible that you know, people like, like Joyce Myers and Weiss, that you know, they ignore the rest of Galatians, and then they you know, would take this verse and just say, well, you know, God thinks you're great because... Yeah. So this is, um, it might, and, and I can understand how someone might misunderstand this a little bit if they only read that verse. But notice all this language of that we have been moved into Christ and that the good works God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them have everything to do with us being created in Christ Jesus. And so I say this with some caution, but understanding that the good works are ultimately Christ's good works. That as we enter into, we walk in, as we enter into Christ, we walk in. He is the one to will and to work to his good pleasure in and through us. Understanding that even the work that is accomplished for the believer is a work that Christ has done that he is working through us as we are in him. Make sense? That in so much as there is merit in it, it is only Christ's merit 
I'm only obeying him as he empowers me to do that work. This is why we see in John 15, he says, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. We see in Galatians 5, walk in the spirit. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Instead, you will bear spiritual fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, self-control, and so forth. This whole focus is on being in Christ, saved by grace. Cool? All right, we're going to read on just a little bit. I'm going to cite a few other passages just so you guys understand I'm not just taking one passage and, and slamming this on you. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Psalm 51.5 says, Look, I was guilty of sin from birth, a sinner, the moment my mother conceived me. Jeremiah, so even from the moment of conception, I was a sinner, <laughs> right? Jeremiah 17.9 says, The human mind is more deceitful than anything else. It is incurably bad. Who can understand it? Romans 3.10b and 11 says, No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Understand then, if I'm looking at Ephesians 2.7, knowing all this stuff about my own wickedness, my own sinfulness, my own lack of merit, then when I read Ephesians 7 when it says, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Who is it that is receiving the glory when it is God who is working by his grace to save us? God is. It's God. In fact, the worse I was, and I'm not advocating more sin so that God can just get more glory for his grace, but recognizing that the worse I was the more God shows his immeasurable riches in his grace. That even in my wickedness, God turns that around and shows himself glory by showing grace in accordance with it. Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Can we see, just like we saw when we were addressing uh, the other five solas or the other four, that all of this comes back to God receiving the glory. Cool? All right. So, Romans 5, another key passage. Verse 6, it says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, completely by his grace. 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16 says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That is, those who are the worst among us even. Among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Do you recognize that what Paul is saying is, I'm, I really, guys, I'm the foremost of sinners. Some translations say the chief of sinners. I am the best at sinning. And yet, what God says is that he wanted to show the greatness of Jesus and his grace so much that he chose me to save, to show his glory all the more. Hopefully this puts us in a wonderful position because it means if God can save Paul out of no works that Paul did, then he can save me as well. That is very good news. So, we ask this question, what does all this say about God? Well, Ephesians 2, it says that he is rich in mercy. He has great love towards us. He's made us alive in Christ. He's seated us in the heavenly places. He is immeasurably gracious and kind. I pull away from this, this understanding of salvation by grace alone, all we've seen in Ephesians, primarily in the other passages, that, man, God is wonderful. 
What does it say about us? Well, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We followed the course of this world. We followed Satan. We lived in the passions of our flesh. We were children of wrath. It does not say great things about us pre-Christ. So then the big question is, how do we need to respond? By the way, this, this method of exegesis is kind of a key thing. Almost every week in our house churches, we'll say, what does it say about God? What does it say about us? How should we respond? We do more detailed study than that, but I love this as a way to respond to what God has said. Hopefully the result here is that we see how great God is, how much we need him. And so the big response is we're just going to look at Romans 6. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I'm going to recognize First thing I can do is recognize that salvation is a free gift not based on the merit of the recipient. The second thing is if I have not already done so, I need to repent and believe. Romans 10, 9, and 10 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So I will... Um, I'll just speak very plainly. I know many of you have put your trust in Christ. If you have done so, praise God. Then the best thing you can do today is thank Him for His atoning death and resurrection, for salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and say, praise you, God. You've saved me. Thank you. And just rejoice. Give Him worship. If you have not done this, what you need to do is repent and believe. Declare Jesus your Lord. Believe in this atoning work, and it's as simple as that. Um, now, as you all know, I, I don't do a lot of emotive stuff. Um, I, I don't even think Joe knows how to play just as I am. Um, so we don't do emotive altar calls. I don't try to manipulate with emotion. Uh, what I'm asking that you would do is you would simply surrender to Christ if you have not previously done so. If you have, then take a moment to worship him for what he has done in saving you because it's really good news. In fact, I almost, I, anytime I teach on something like this, I'm like, it's so much bigger than I can explain. It's so much bigger than I can show. I can't even really get all my emotion out on it. And so I try to just kind of keep myself together and explain this as didactically and as clearly as possible. This is the biggest thing ever. And so what I'm going to do, if you would like to respond, I'm going to give you time as I'm sharing the boring announcements. Some of them are kind of exciting, actually, um, that you can respond to God. If you do and you surrender your life to Christ, or if you have done so, let somebody know. Let me know or somebody else. We have a high value of baptism. We will either take you to the lake and baptize you, or we will find a hot tub somewhere that is warm. If that's too cold, we will baptize you. Um, probably today, if you're up for it. Um, everybody with me? Cool. So I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to share announcements. All right? Father God, thank you. Um, how meager my words are, God, that you have saved us by grace. We were dead. We had nothing to offer you, and yet you made atonement for us in Christ. You saved us. You brought us out of death and made us alive in Christ. I, I can't even use big enough words. I can't express it fully. I just want to say thank you, Lord. Um, I, we're, we're surrendered to you. Lord, if there is anyone who has not put their faith in you, put their trust in you, repented and believed, then God, I pray that you would draw them by, by the Holy Spirit to Christ to do so even now. We ask all this, um, we ask all this in Christ's name and offer you glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen.